fire, fire, fire everywhere. Okay. Alberta is on fire. I have been uh, busy. I apologize for not getting some content out to you fine folks, all my supporters out there sooner. But uh, yeah, your boy's been a little busy putting wet stuff on red stuff. Uh, yeah. And that, that voice you hear in the background is Brandon Kirby. Uh, so Brandon, thanks for joining us. I, I thought I'd throw this together at the last minute. I'm like, look, I got to get something out to my audience. It's been a while. It's been a hot second. Pardon the pun. No, don't pardon the pun. Screw it. Embrace the pun. It's been a hot second. Hot few seconds. Um, so I, I thought we could do uh, just kind of recap some current events and uh, see where we're at. I put out this uh, request literally 20 minutes ago. Said, hey, can anyone want to hop on a live stream with me? The top of the hour here. Brandon reached out to me, said, sure, I'm in. Uh, I got another guy, Alex Flores from Arizona, who I've never talked to before. Not even 100% sure who he is, but he reached out and said, hey, I'm in. So we'll see if he hops on the on <laughs> the call and uh, we'll have ourselves a little live stream party here. So Brandon, I haven't heard from you in a while. How are, how are you doing? What What's new with you? Miserably. Oh, well, fantastic. Yeah, Join the conservative party. That's how bad things are. What? Why? I I don't know. I um I, I see an opportunity for uh, reform with uh, central banking, which I think is huge. I you spoke see, with you. You see an opportunity there. I do actually, and really? I spoke with uh, Melissa Lansman. Uh, might be able to change their minds on the Saudi arms deal. They've got a convention coming up in September, so we'll see if I'm okay. successful. If I'm not successful, then I'll come crawling back on my hands and knees to the to the Libertarian Party. But yeah. uh, if it works, great. You better uh, bring some it... grovel with you when you come crawling <laughs> back. You better grovel, grovel son. Yeah, I they're not going to do anything about central banking, Brandon. You know this. Melissa Lansman's a great gal. I, you know, I've she's followed me for. I think she's a secret libertarian. There's there's closet libertarians that are in the conservative party, and uh, they they but but you know they they're well, not going to get anything done. Much like Melissa Lansman, I'm thoroughly out of the closet as a libertarian. But uh, yeah. I apologize for my makeshift uh, studio here. I'm a mid move, so oh. having some fun here. What about uh, you, Tim? What's uh, what's new with you? Probably the fires occupying uh, much of your time. Yeah, man, fires. Uh, that's about uh, that's about it. Just work, work, and and life. Yeah, I've I've kind of fallen off and, and trying to put out some content there to my good folks. You know, we're trying to figure out how to live free in an unfreed world here, Brandon. We're probably not going to change the government. I, I love your pie-in-the-sky optimism that you might be able to get some central bank reform happening there. Ain't going to happen. Hey, Brandon, they're bringing in central bank digital currency. That's on the horizon. How, how, like, On what planet do you think the Conservative Party is going to be pushing back against that? I'm on crypto. What do I care about people who use fiat currency? That's, that's on you guys. Uh, well, you just said you joined the Conservative Party to try to get some central banking reform. That is, uh, so you're, you, you seem to care about fiat. Huh? Well, that's out of charity, though. That's my charity work. Oh, that's your charity work. I see. You're, you're... That's people on minimum wage. That's well, on listen. fixed income. Those are people that are getting screwed left, right, and center. Not me. <laughs> I'm getting rich off this shit. Well, you know how God much money you. you make as a bond trader? You know how much money you make as a real estate investor? You know how much money you can make as a crypto trader? You know how much money you can make as a uh, commodities trader off of fiat currency? A shit ton of cash. That's can you make more than amount. a firefighter? Can you make more than a firefighter, Brandon? Firefighters can do it, too. Hey, we got Alex Flores here. Alex, you're joining us from where do you live? Arizona? 
Yeah, I'm in Arizona. I don't know if you can hear me or not. Oh, yeah, we can hear you. Fantastic. He's coming through loud. Oh, sweet. There. Is Arizona on fire too? Um, weird. I've, there've been a couple of controlled burns lately, but I haven't really seen any wildfires as of late, but it's, it's still early in the season here. So very good. Well, I listen, Alex and Brandon, uh, I, I threw out the request about 20, 30 minutes ago saying, Hey, I'd want to do a live stream. I got to bring my audience some content here. And so you boys hopped on and volunteered your time. So I appreciate you. Um, I had a list of things I wanted to talk about. Alex, uh, you know, I apologize in advance. A lot of this stuff is Canadian stuff, but you know what? I'd love to hear a, 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 an American take on some of the stuff we're going through here in Canada as well. So I'm interested to hear what you you have to say. The first thing off the bat is is the wildfires. I do want to talk about that, not just because I've been out there fire, fighting them as a firefighter, but uh, talk about a couple of the things I've noticed. Number one, it's very clear that property owners do a really good job of firefighter fighting compared to us, like say government firefighters, um, you know, in fairness, they have a smaller section to take care of, but they really care about it. They're on the ball. They're, they're, um, thinking of innovative ways to put it out. They're not resting till it's put out because man, that's their livelihood. That's their property that they're concerned about. So it occurred to me that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, we ought to privatize a bit more land if we want to get control of some of these wildfires. What do you guys? Tim, I'd like to hear a little bit uh, more about your, uh, your take on all of this. I mean, as a firefighter, is, is it the case that uh, fire code adherence is, is probably the, the top gun in terms of combating fire? Like what does a firefighting department look like in a libertarian utopia? It's not like I haven't given up on the dream. I may have joined yeah. the Conservative Party, and I know I broke your heart <laughs> to a thousand pieces. Yeah, you, you did. But uh, in, in terms of a libertarian utopia, which is the dream we share, what does firefighting look like? Is it insurance companies that handle it? Well, I think yeah, insurance companies probably have a lot more. I mean, it, it's kind of like asking an abolitionist 200 years ago, what, how does cotton get picked without slaves, right? I, right. The correct answer is I don't, I don't really know, but I'm sure we could come up with a better idea. But, but sure, we know that insurance companies uh, have done, um, you know, that, that's how firefighting originally started. Like in London, um, it was all insurance companies up until the Great Fire of London, right? And the Great Fire of London took out a big chunk of London. And, and it cost insurance companies so much to, to maintain fire departments that they were looking, just like any good corporation, they look for ways to outsource expense, their cost of doing business to the state. And in this case, it was the city government. And they said, hey, city of London, you should take this over. It's public safety after all. It's like, you know, this, this you know, so so they, they washed their hands of the responsibility right. they had as, as insurance companies, as all corporations that are successful tend to do in this oligopolist uh, kind of uh, crony environment we live in. But yeah, I, I think that certainly insurance companies have a lot to do uh, with it. Uh, I mean, in wildfires in California, we saw rich folks like Kanye West hire private fire departments and and they were able to save their homes and their neighbors homes too so you know it's kind of like um you know how there's uh what are negative externalities it's like a positive externality of market firefighting that hey we we don't just protect our clients we we need to protect the people around them in order to protect our clients um and so you know there, there's a positive externality that comes with market-based firefighting i think that uh you don't necessarily get so but but even uh, 
but but yes, I think a lot more of it would deal with prevention. Like it, it the cheapest way, um, the cheapest thing, the most efficient thing is to prevent fires from ever happening, right? And so, uh, you know, it's no coincidence that um, it was, I think, Rural Metro, actually down there near neck of the woods, Alex, uh, Rural Metro, it's a private firefighting company. Um, and it pioneered a lot of fire code and fire code enforcement stuff. It's because look, it's cheaper to prevent fires from happening than it is to build a giant department to respond to, to everything that happens. Um, so I, I think that you would see, cheaper. A, yeah, it's way cheaper, way cheaper. Right. So I think you'd see a lot more, um, in terms of that and the way you might structure it, if you were an insurance company is look, you know, if you're, especially if you're a libertarian and you're concerned about the voluntary nature of your relationship with your clients, right. Is it's like, listen, if you don't want me to come into your private space and inspect it, fine. We'll just charge you a premium because I don't know what's going on behind closed doors. I don't know how safe it is. If you'd be willing to op open up your doors and allow our inspectors to come in at random times and inspect your fire load and that things are being done properly, we can dramatically drop your insurance rate. So it's up to you. If you want privacy, you pay for it. If you want, uh, uh, you know, to be more transparent with what's going on for fire safety, we'll drop your rates. So that that's kind of how I would structure it if I was an insurance company. And then I would I would be focused on educating my clients about preventing fires from ever happening. I'd be very engaged with them um, with, with that, you know, because we wouldn't want because because fires are a costly business and, you know, it takes so I think it would look something like that. So I is, Zinc, oh, sorry, go ahead, uh, Alex. Uh, I was going to say, I think it's pretty awesome that you do uh, firefighting. I, I I did wildland firefighting for four or five years. And uh, it's actually really interesting uh, that we're, we're talking about this because in the area that I live in, I live in a rural part of Arizona. And so um, fire services around here are actually provided by a company called Timber Mesa. And our local municipality, our, our local town government here pays them to do fire service here in our area. And so they do both wildland and, um, uh, I guess, residential, residential fire. But um, they're, I think the, the only difference with the libertarian society would be that uh, instead of being paid with tax money, they would be collectively paid by the community. Because these are things that, like in order to have a successful community that, you know, you and your neighbors are going to want to invest in, in order to, to keep your property safe. And right. so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think it makes sense. You know, I, I'm not sure that a libertarian fire department would look much different than, than a typical municipal department that we have right now. There'd probably be a little bit more emphasis on prevention than on, you know, gold leaf lettering and, and looking, you know, sexy for the councilman, because like uh, there is a big, political component to fire fire stations in that you know you can count on uh candidates for political office municipal office to come by the fire station and get pictures with the firemen and both beside the big fancy red trucks and the response time is really the response side of firefighting is really sexy they never go over to the fire prevention side and, and get pictures with the fire investigators and, and the fire prevention officers, right. That are out there engaged with the public doing education. That's not sexy. What's sexy is the big trucks that they can pay for that. They can show the public, look at how much I care about the community. So I think it would skew a little bit more towards prevention, but, but ultimately, you know, if you think about this from just a practical standpoint, let's imagine, well, let's imagine a condominium building, right? You have 
one fire protection system for the for the apartment building, right? You don't have a separate fire protection system for each individual apartment. That wouldn't make sense because essentially it's one unit. Everything is connected. All the fire exposures, like it's if one side of it catches on fire, it's going to sweep through the whole thing. So every you know you want kind of one centralized fire system for the whole thing, rather than each leave each apartment dweller up to themselves to figure out what fire things you want. And, and it's the same in a city, you know, because everything's so close together and because a, a hazard or a fire in one, on one property is going to affect other properties, the infrastructure owner, that the owner of that infrastructure would probably be best served to be the one to, uh, to fight any fires or catastrophes that are happening that can affect the other property owners there rather than have multiple competing fire departments within a private city. I think a private city itself would probably provide that service. And so again, I don't think it might, it would look that much different. Although I do think that there would be more accountability. So for example, you'd, you would um, have contractually contractual obligations to your citizens, your rate payers for uh, a timely response, right? It would be, you know, you just think about pizza delivery, 30 minutes or your pizza's free. You would have some guarantees like that from your emergency services, I would expect, in, in a market-based system where you're accountable contractually rather than just through a, a, a nebulous social contract or something like that. Yeah, I uh, just moved into a rural part of uh, New Brunswick. And, you know, I also have an apartment in Montreal as well. So it's quite a stark contrast, the big city and uh, much more quiet uh, base of life but to pick up on what alex was saying you know people will just do this and it's like what you were saying do as well uh, tim people just do it like roads you know we're libertarians everybody's asked us about roads at some point and the reality is we just do the roads ourselves out here right it's it's great i've, I've had the property as a rental for about uh, eight years so i i have to chip in you know three hundred dollars a year probably right. uh, just in terms of getting the plowing done getting the potholes fixed we just do it ourselves we don't rely on the government we've got people here with the paving company we've got people here with the plowing company and it works we make it happen right. well yeah. and you and you guys may or may not remember brandon i'm sure you do i don't know if, if this news hit you at all alex but uh, about five or six years ago uh a fairly major uh town or city in, in alberta lost like 4,000 homes to a wildfire. Uh, that was my community at Fort McMurray. And, um, you know, you, you have to, and then a couple years before that, there was a town of Slave Wake, which had smaller population, but similar story. So there's all these towns in the middle of boreal forest up here in Alberta. And you have to wonder if you, if you owned one of these towns, if you were the private owner of a city, and you were you had this huge hazard to your customers, your residents that were counting on you to keep them safe from from you know wildfires or something like that. What kinds of things might you do to mitigate the risk? Well, one of the things you might do is like create a bunch of fire breaks around the city uh, or something like that. What you might not do is engage in the green agenda where you plant more trees and and infiltrate the city with more fire load uh, than it needs. Uh, in, in the name of, uh, you know, some green ideology or something like that. Uh, but, you know, again, what we have are not city owners. We have these elected representatives whose goal is to 
get elected and stay in power, not to provide good service, not not to take on personal liability and have this onus on them to protect. You could imagine that heads might roll if you're a private city and you you don't do take proper preventative measures and uh, your citizens lose their homes or or their lives, right? So so uh, you know the incentive structures are just all wrong right now for for um, protecting from wildfires. My perspective. Well, and if uh, I, I'm not sure how the system all works in Canada, I imagine it's probably similar. Oh, wow. But when I was when I was doing wildland firefighting, um, there would be times that we would spot a new start and we would see smoke and we we could even see flames coming from it, but according to who was paying us that fire didn't exist until they had an account number assigned to it. Right. And so we couldn't do anything or weren't even allowed to do anything on it until that account number was there and they knew where the money was coming from. And so, um, yeah, I think the, I think the major differences that will, that we would see would just be where the funding comes from. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, that again, that, that is kind of an endemic problem. Maybe I think it's less of a problem here in Canada because we're, we're straight up socialists. Like it's the state that provides the firefighting, whereas there it's a, a, a private public partnership, right? sounds like the company you work for was private. And so they had a bottom line to meet They're, they're They have one client though, and that's the state. And so they have to, you know, uh, ensure that the state is going to pay for them to do that. Whereas we just go ahead and do it because the state's going to pay us regardless. Um, yeah, it was a federal contract. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. So uh, that's one difference. Okay, let's let's move on. I think we've uh, we, we've uh, beat that one to death. All right, uh, Alex, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, Canada has a new king. We have this guy named Charles. Um he was, you, you might remember Charles from about, uh, I remember about 20 or 30 years ago, he was having an affair with this, with this, uh, side piece named Camilla Parker Bowles. And, uh, there, there was a big scandal. It was called T- tampon gate because a phone conversation leaked. A, 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 it was a sex conversation between Charles and Camilla about how he, he was taught going on about how he wanted to live in her trousers and how, uh, he wanted to be a tampon, her tampon or something like that. It was pretty sorted uh, Like it, it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, the kind of conversation that might happen between uh, some blue collar folks like me and my wife. I, I don't think we've ever been quite that nasty with our, our bedroom talk, but uh, you know, I could see it maybe if we had, we're a little too tipsy going there, but it, I think it's just warms my heart to see that, that a regular guy who wants to be a tampon with, for his side piece is now the king of, of the world, basically of, of the UK and Canada. I mean, there's hope for us, isn't there, Brandon? For Well, you know what? Uh, now that I'm a conservative, God right. save the king, even if but... he is a slobbering oaf who yells at pets. <laughs> Alex, I... you, know, you, guys don't, you guys don't have a king, so you're kind of missing out. Do you, do you, do you guys ever regret? Um <laughs> You know, we have an oligarchy. It's close, you know. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> you know, I, I asked this. I actually did a. I moderated um, the Libertarian Party's vice presidential candidate debate once, and one of the questions I asked them, and I'm going to ask you, Alex, uh, given that Canada and, and the U.S. on the, I think it's on the Economic Freedom Index or something like that. Canada is actually about even or a little bit of better than the U.S. 
on I, I don't know what what the metrics are, but uh, given that we're essentially about the same, I mean, there's not a huge amount of difference in the amount of. I, I guess you guys get more guns, but we get more drugs. So I mean, that kind of <laughs> it's kind of a wash, right? Um, <laughs> more reported it, guns, anyway. <laughs> right, right. Um, was it worth killing all those people? to depose the monarch there and go through a revolution. When do you personally recommend violent revolution uh, from your monarch, Alex? So I'm actually, so I'm part, I'm um, part Native American indigenous. So okay. that question is, is kind of interesting to me because yeah, no <laughs> I, I even have problems with our declaration of independence calling my ancestors savages. So, I mean, uh, it's, <laughs> um, you know, I didn't even know it did that. I, all I knew is a good put part of it that yeah says there's our, like a our, you know inalienable rights or whatever i didn't know there yeah was there's a lot of yeah there's a whole lot about you know all men are created equal and right. and these things and then and then it goes into this list of like grievances against the king and one of them is that uh you know the king has sent these merciless indian savages after us you know and uh oh it says it somewhere i forget how far down in the declaration of independence there but yeah um yeah, I, was it worth it? Uh, you know, that's it's it's probably debatable. You know, um, I don't know which system would really be better at this point. I mean, some of the things that we've gotten from our constitution and and some of the the charges, I guess that that have led worldwide as far as people finding more freedom and and uh, independence, I guess, um, is one factor, but then again, you know, that may have also, that may have happened regardless. So. Right. Right. Well, I, I mean, look, any, any normal person will tell you the idea of a monarch is preposterous. The, the idea that one guy is ruling all of us, that he's the boss of us who made him the boss. God made him the boss. Of course not. Of course not. But it's all right. If it's uh if it's, you know, if the guy won a popularity contest called the vote, then, okay, now we can, uh, now everything is is fine or you know it's just uh i mean what you're saying there it, it, it's basically the same reason why i don't think that uh i think presidential elections are pretty ridiculous for that reason because we're all voting for you know one person who's supposedly running it all when it's really not it's it's like a whole team of people man but for the vastness of what our what our countries have become like it takes an entire team of people and the fact that we're only electing one person to lead that entire team and then they just get to handpick the rest of them, I, I don't think it works out very well. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brandon, it's, it's Brandon you're, 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 you love the monarch now. Like you basically yeah. are like riding King Charles' lap, giving him lap dances as a conservative, right? Uh, so what are your thoughts? Are we, are, are we wrong here about King? Should we be? Should we be more sympathetic to a monarch? I was trying to think of a tampon analogy for a dude, ah, but I couldn't come up with would one. Would you like to spot. be King Charles tampon now that you're a conservative? <laughs> I, that's I, bad. Well, Sorry. you know Just what? As, uh, I guess it would be his butt plug, right? Technically, no. That's the one that I came up with, but it was too, too crass. Crap. I don't know how far yeah. we can go on the podcast. But yeah, I'll this, tell is you, a, this is a blue-collar crass podcast. I'm a firefighter. I hang around firefighters. We so can talk shop then. Okay. I'm probably a little too crass. Well, I'm I'll a mechanic you, now, so... Oh, well, there we go. All right. <laughs> Brandon's a bond trader and a conservative, so we have to be a little careful around him, Alex. 
Yeah, All right. watch your, <laughs> in the hedge fund industry, we're really uh, we're, we're church goers, Sunday school types in the hedge fund right. industry. Our meetings take place right. in strip clubs, okay? So it's not right. that uh, clean. But I'll tell you, I, one of the things that I find fascinating is, and I don't know what the answer to this is. There's probably opinion polls out about it, but to what extent were Canadians monarchists rather than Elizabethans? We had a particular monarch that was really popular. Is that to say the institution of the monarchy is popular with Canadians? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I I mean, in fairness, I mean, most people liked Queen Elizabeth. I mean, she she kind of knew her place. She stayed out of stayed in her lane quite a bit. Like she was, she didn't do anything embarrassing. You know, not like her boys. Her boys are are embarrassed between tampon gate with Charles wanting to be a tampon and and uh, Andrew going to Epstein Island and got doing God knows what over there. You know, it's uh, the rest of the family's a bit embarrassing. And then you got Harry and Megan and, you know, I mean, the, the, Epstein, seems- the Epstein Island thing seems to be a pretty popular thing though. Cause that's like most celebrities in America have been to that Island. It sounds like, you know, so. Hey guys, I just realized because we're live, <laughs> we're getting comments. There's uh, Jamie Janad. Hey Tim. Hey Jamie. Uh, Dominic. Hey guys. Awesome. Good to see you guys out there. Uh, Canada is a slave state. Well, yeah, I think most states are slave states to be honest, but most if we have now. a benevolent Republic monarch that people had more power, it would be plausible. Well, yeah, we got to rely on that benevolence, right? And that you got to rely on benevolence in perpetuity as well. Cause once you're like, Oh, yeah. we got a benevolent monarch here. Let's give them all the power. Well, now what? That's what I say. What are you going to do with his descent? When if his descendants, uh, Prince Charles or Prince Andrew or Prince Harry, and you got Meghan Markle (laughs) in there running the show, and now I I say that I make that point to every liberal now on Bill C eleven. Alex, it's a big online censorship bill that we have, Uh, but I say that to the Maxine Bernier fan club as well on immigration. It's the same point. You have to rely on it, as you said, Tim, in perpetuity. So, you know, the Maxime Bernier fanboys will come along and say, we need a values test for immigrants. And I said, really? You want Justin Trudeau to determine the values of everyone coming into the country? No, no, no. That's not what I mean. (laughs) Yes, you do. That's exactly what they're saying. Bill C-11. The example I give is pretend, imagine, this will be hard for the two of you, but just for the sake of a thought experiment, imagine you're a U.S. Democrat circa 2010. You love the Democratic Party. Okay, easy to imagine. (laughs) You see Obama using the IRS to audit his enemies. You see him amassing more power to the executive state. You see uh, the spy measures. You say, well, that's okay. It's fine and dandy because it's Obama, and I trust Obama. What happened in 2016? It was the guy you did not want to have those powers that got the powers. The time to protest is when the state is on your side. Now is the time for liberals to speak out against Bill C-11 or their yeah. new hunting rifle ban. Now it's the time for the liberals to speak up and say, look, this is wrong. This is too much power being uh, given to the state. They don't have the capacity to exercise this wisely, as you say, in perpetuity. Fair enough. Okay, listen, I feel like we should get to some questions. Um, <laughs> here, This guy's got Dazalk. Daza, 
I don't know how to pronounce. Sorry, sorry for butchering your name. Did you hear the theory that the fire started from group of women firefighters? Well, I, it's not a theory. It was actually in Banff. There was there was a female uh, firefighters conference apparently, uh, international women breaking down gender barriers and whatnot, and uh, they were part of a prescribed burn. And uh, that got away and, and <laughs> threatened the town of Banff, unfortunately. Now, you know, I know uh, people will make a lot of that and say, well, were the standards lower? I don't know what the standards are for female firefighters. I know the female firefighters that I work with, um, they're not they're not a lot of them because they have to meet the same standard as, as men, okay? And, and so these gals that I work with, we don't see them as females. We see them as firefighters like any one of us. They they are, they're beasts, and, you know, and, and in fact you know, to, to meet the standard of firefighting as a female, you have to be an exceptionally fit female. Okay. Uh, a, a guy in good shape could do it, but like a good shape female, it's not enough. You actually have to be an exceptional shape. So these, these are elite people in my mind. So they're actually, I hold them in higher esteem than a lot of the, my male firefighter colleagues. I don't know if that's the case with these wildland females, but, um, I do know that they someone there exercised poor judgment, and no amount of um, of prowess, physical prowess, or firefighting expertise is going to overcome bad judgment. When you light up a fire and the it's windy and hot and dry conditions, um, you're asking for trouble, and that's kind of what it sounds like they did. So uh, now he's got another question here. Just switching gears a little bit. How do libertarians view selling of land to private parties? How much should the government charge? Uh, this is a this is a great question. It's one I've often thought about. You know, there, there's the government owns too much land. It has too much. How do we parcel it out? And one of the things I thought about was having um, uh, like almost like a land lottery. I, I don't think we need to charge Canadians, but it, you know, the land lottery could maybe be for taxpayers for so people that have. Uh, uh, that are actually contributing to the infrastructure of Canada. Uh, it would be a way of them getting some compensation or reparations back uh, from the money that was taken from them. Maybe it would be based on how much taxes you've had to pay, or maybe it would be based on a lottery system, um, something like that. But I, I think what you would want to do is parcel up the land and um, and and then have some sort of lottery for in Canadians, current Canadians, to um to to grab up that land uh and homestead it and do what they want with it i don't know what do you, do you guys have any suggestions how would you how would you if you were king of canada uh, and you wanted to get rid of a bunch of crown land and say hey look the government has no right to own any of this because we're a criminal cartel and we don't own it by the way because all we did was plant a flag and say as far as the eye could see ours oh there were some people here right. ah, they don't count savages you know? Yeah, I, I was just <laughs> like, going to say, you know, this is all based on the right. premise that the government is the rightful owner of the land in the first place, which, you know, right, right. is debatable. <laughs> right. And, and so a libertarian conception of property ownership, property comes into ownership when you appropriate it from unowned nature. Right. So, uh, you know, or you mix your labor with it. So you go out into the into the woods. It's unowned. You chop down some trees, you build a cabin. Well, you can say that that cabin's yours. You put a fence around it or you you plow up some fields. Well, you can say you've mixed your labor with stuff. You've appropriated that amount of land. 
no one else has it. You, you have the right to exclude people from that. No one else can claim that that land is theirs. That's how property comes into being. I can't just plant a flag and say, everything I see, as far as I can see from ocean to ocean, that's mine. That's bullshit. You can't, that's not how uh, you appropriate property. Um, so, you know, again, we call into question whether government actually owns that land. It doesn't. It, it hasn't done anything to appropriate it or homestead it. All it's done is lay a claim to it and an illegitimate claim too, because there might've been some people here, some individuals here before the, those, those, that government arrived that uh, has a better claim to that land, let's say, than they do for sure. Uh, so I think that's a real uh, pragmatic question, especially in terms of uh, to what extent is Elon Musk going to own Mars? Uh, right. We're going to we're gonna have to grapple with that. So this is a question that's going to have to uh, play out in the policy very, very quickly. I, just more pragmatically in terms of valuation of it, there's lots of ways where there's lots of different uh, valuation theories on properties. I'm a real estate investor and I was a mortgage broker for five years. But uh, realistically, you can evaluate it with NAS, National Appraisal Service here in Canada. Okay, but let's say you appraise it at a certain amount. Why should I give that money to the government? They don't even own it, right? Well, that's why I said that's the ethical question. That's the uh, the theoretical that plays out. So, so what but, we're talking about here, Brandon, from my perspective is the government like they, they need to release their claim on that land. But then of course, you're going to have the chaos of everyone wanting to claim that land for themselves. So you, you know, the, the, it, this is really a pra practical question of how do you, how do you peacefully retreat and, and like allow um, people to own that land? Is it just a, a war of all against all, or is there, is there a peaceful transitional way that it can occur that makes sense? Well, I mean, I think you could uh, relinquish it for, um, I, I mean, from a pragmatic standpoint, not necessarily, uh, not necessarily a libertarian ideological standpoint, but from a pragmatic standpoint, say, okay, well, I'm going to relinquish this land to uh, real estate developers, for example, if they're going to be developing real estate to help bring down the housing costs. I, I think there's things like that that you could do that uh, that are wise. You could relinquish uh, certain land to indigenous communities. If they're You're starting to, to sound like a conservative, Brandon. Well, I, am a I, think, I think there are some reasonable things we could do. We could release a little bit of land. Who the fuck are you to say release a little bit of land? Release it all. It doesn't belong to you. You don't get to release a damn thing. What we're talking about here is, um, you know, let's. All right. Can, can we have pretty like, boy. Part of me is just like, all right, that we no longer own that land. Let's just see what happens now as people move move in and start laying a claim. But here's here's another question. Um, someone wanted me to ask you there. Uh, oh, that's not it. Uh, this is it. Uh, ask Alex if he thinks that uh, if he thinks that goes for the claims indigenous people make about stolen land a lot of the time too. I'm not exactly sure uh, what that means, but um, yeah, I mean there there is there's a lot of uh, stolen land. I, would you say, Alex, that some of that is legitimate, some of that not so legitimate? Because it seems to me that a lot of times. Uh, in, in Canada, at least, people treat Indigenous people or First Nations as if they're one kind of homogenous blob uh, across Canada, right? Not a whole bunch of different nations with different competing things and different values. And like, it, it's not one thing, you know. And so from, from you know, when I was trying to think through the policy here for, as libertarian leader, like how do we respect First Nation sovereignty, Um well, is all the land, again, do they own everything 
as far as the eye can see? Or is there a way that we can look at them and say, okay, they've interacted with this. Maybe it, it has to do with migration of caribou. Maybe it has to do with collecting off the land. But is there parcels of land that we can say, okay, this for sure belongs to the first peoples that were here and other prop, other tracts of territory, let's say we can deem as unowned. What, what are your thoughts on the whole thing? Well, for me, I, it's a very complicated, it's a complex answer because like you're saying that I, I don't think that all of that land uh, would, would qualify or classify as say stolen land. But um, there are instances where, um, you know, like uh, starting, you know, we could start with honoring the treaties that were made to begin with. Um, that would be a great start. Um, you know, where it goes from there, I think, depends on where those discussions go and what, you know, everybody can cooperatively agree should be done with it. Um, because, you know, just giving the land back to some to the tribes that, you know, originally owned it, um, it can work in some cases, like they did that in Oklahoma. Um, you know, there are some tribes that are still really prevalent now, uh, comparatively to some other ones that, uh, you know, uh, that that seems like a, a, a really sensible answer. But then you have tribes like, uh, I can't even remember the name of it now, but there's a, there's a tribe in California, for example, that has been so wiped out that the only thing that they have left is a half acre burial site. And that's all the tribal land that they have left. Mm. And so in cases like that, it's like, well, there's nobody around left to give it to. And so, um, you know, how do we, how do we right the wrongs in those instances? I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. like I said, it's, it's very complex and it, it really like just opening the discussion would be a great start honoring the treaties that, that are already in place that haven't been honored for the last 300 years would be a great start. <laughs> That's my thought process to a T. It's honoring the treaties. You can circle this back to the previous conversation that we're having because this was indigenous land. There's territories. They curated the land according to sort of a John Locke view of property rights. And we signed treaties that were signed in good faith. We haven't honored the treaties. And so if you want to call something crown land, let's call it crown land. But let's also just honor the treaties. That includes the big part of that in Canada that we're not honoring. I don't know the American situation, so my apologies. But in Canada, it's profit sharing from resource development that we're not doing. Uh, at least we're doing it yeah. on a, a very, very minimal level. Uh, so yeah. if we're to legitimately profit share from resource development, then as far as I'm concerned, those those treaties are valid. Right now, we haven't uh, been adhering to it. Yeah, well, part part of the problem with the treaties, at least in Canada here, is that, you know, the the mineral rights were sold out from underneath the first peoples, right? Because um, they basically said, yeah, you can do whatever you want on the surface. The crown, yeah, we own all the shit underneath your feet, right? So, you know, in Fort McMurray, for example, in the oil sands region where I come from, and, and uh, Dalzac, I'll get to your question here in a second. Uh, but one of the things that happens is there is, is you know, the big open pit mines is traditionally how the oil sands were done. It's, it's just this uh, sand that is full of tar that we extract. Right. Um, now I'm a big booster of free market and oil and gas, but also that the, these mines are located on, um, on, on first nation territory, uh, traditional land. And so they, they have kind of this, um, I guess, superficial consultation pr process with, with these first nations people, but ultimately the land gets 
done. And then, of course, the First Nation people get preference on contracts and they get a bunch of money and, and different things like that. If if it were uh, the case that they actually own that land, if they they were property proper property owners, let's say, I try to think about how I would do it if I were in their shoes. And what I would probably do is I would be concerned about handing down a pristine wilderness to my my grandchildren, my ancestors. But at the same time, I'd also want to benefit from the economic uh, progress that and opportunity that comes with developing that resource or extracting that resource. And so what I might say is, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to allow an oil company to come in and mine uh, a, a lease at a time with the most least invasive technology they have available. And that right now is SAG D where they put pipes in, they don't have to wipe the thing off. When I'm convinced that that piece of land is, is returned to a pristine state of nature, then I'll let you come and do another section of land. And by the way, you're going to have to put billions of dollars in escrow so that if you ever mess up and I have to kick you off the land, I have access to money that I can use to reclaim that land and bring it back to. So I, I would do it in a kind of a responsible, orderly way. That's probably how I do it as a property owner. There's probably different ways you can imagine, but that's not how it's done now at all. The, the First Nations people aren't given any real choice other than this kind of superficial, uh, uh, you know, consultation process that's done for show more than anything to check a, a box off. Yep. So, you know, well, that's kind of in a lot of instances, too, like uh, I, I've done a lot of work with the, the Navajo reservation here in uh, in the United States. And uh, one of the big issues that they had <clears throat> um, a few years back was uh was do was drilling for oil and natural resources within Chaco Canyon, which is a, a historical reservation site. Um, there's a lot of uh, historical buildings there and, and things like that, that the, that the tribe wants to preserve. Um, and the government basically wanted to come in and lease the land in order to do this drilling uh, for these resources. Um, they originally passed it to where the tribe said, okay, you can go ahead and do this. We'll lease it to you, but you have to put a 10 mile barrier around Chaco Canyon so that you can't come within 10 miles of the Canyon. Well, that was all good to get it past the tribal council in order to get it past the vote so that they could approve it. But once it made it to DC, the entire, the, basically the, the entire agreement was undermined and they're now currently drilling within Chaco Canyon. So, hmm. um, yeah, I get you. They, they always, yeah, the, the, if anything has been become abundantly clear in the past two years, if it wasn't before, it should be in the past two years, is that there is an unholy alliance between corporations and government that, you know, I, I underestimated even as a libertarian how bad the oligarch was, right? I mean, but I mean, the last two years was basically seemed like an exercise in selling Pfizer. You know, and and big, we saw how in bed big pharma. I mean, they basically ruined our lives and and locked us down. And and let me move on to the next thing here because uh, this kind of transitions to my next point, and that is the uh, there, there's some controversy in Alberta right now. We have a provincial election coming up. Danielle Smith is uh, the she she describes herself as a libertarian conservative. She is running for premier. She's a current premier. Um, and she's up against basically a socialist uh, um, in, in New Democrat Party in Rachel Notley. And so the media is out to get old Danielle uh, because she's one of these libertarians. Now, 
she was on a podcast or a radio show uh, about two years ago before she was premier talk comparing the 75% of vaccinated Albertans to the Nazis. Okay. She basically said, um, when <laughs> she, she, she was, it was, she didn't outright call them Nazis, but she said, look, we've, we have had, uh, you know, 75% of Albertans take this vaccine and support this kind of evil regime. Um, it, it, she, she was comparing it to, look, if you were in Germany uh, in the 30s, let's not kid ourselves, you would have been a bandwagon jumper, just like 75% of Germans kind of went with the flow and didn't push back, didn't resist. Most Albertans went with the flow and didn't resist. And so she, she, you know, kind of compared 75% of Albertans to Nazi supporters because, uh, because they took the vaccine. So a lot, the left is making this into a big deal, but, um, was she I would wrong? argue that I would argue that a good portion of Americans uh, in the United States went along with things instead of, you know, protesting. I mean, I, I went, I went to some of the protests during 2020 and, uh, uh, some of the crowds comparatively for, you know, the anti-mandates uh, protests versus like the Black Lives Matter protests were, um, I mean, you could tell where the support was and where it wasn't. And right. a, a lot of people were not willing to stand up. When it came down to it, a lot of people who said that they were about that fight weren't. <laughs> right, right. Sorry. And so what you're saying is the the BLM protests you saw were much bigger than the anti-mandate ones? Is that right? Okay. Tim, as I recall, you and I disagree on this. Um, now, for the record, I raised money for the trucker convoy. So when push came yeah. to shove, I, that's where I stood. But uh, I do support vaccines. My question is... What, I, what did we disagree on? Remind well, me. Refresh my memory. I'll, uh, I'll hone in on it. I, I think Smith had an interesting point about Nazis. Because the reality is we have human trafficking going on in Canada today. So wherever you think you would have been during, let's say, the American Civil War, that's what you'd be doing today. We have genocide going on in the northern part of North Yemen today that Canada is contributing to. Whatever you think you would have been doing with Nazi Germany, that's whatever you're doing today is what you would have been doing then. So that's my take on her specific comment for the question. But where you and I were disagreeing is what happens in a libertarian utopia where, let's say, every private property grocery store owner mm – -hmm wants you to show your vaccine card before you go into the store right it's all private property now the origin of the vaccine you can say look this is heinous it's government collusion uh, all of that's probably true but what happens in that libertarian utopia where all the private property store owners uh, get to call those shots and you don't want to get the vax yeah well you you don't get uh groceries in i guess right bud so, but well, but let's let's be realistic that that's not going to happen right no private store wanted to implement that i was just going to say that i i don't think that you would ever have a consensus like that where you would no. have a hundred percent because even like here where mandates were in place like you couldn't get a hundred percent of the store owners to agree with them or to implement or to implement the uh the statute you know the the different parts of the mandates and so I don't think you'd ever get consensus like that. And then I also think that uh, in a libertarian society that you would probably have more accountability. And so you would likely have a more informed, uh, hopefully you would have a more informed population to where they could 
they could actually weigh the information for themselves and not just be dependent on whatever yeah. I slanted mean, I, I, information I mean, can, they're getting. Can we all agree that the attitudes and um, I, I guess, yeah, the, the attitudes that, that the vast majority of the population had, well, actually on both sides towards uh, the vaccines and the mandates and, and, and just the pandemic in general, right? Just the COVID virus in general was all almost a hundred percent informed by statist propaganda. Like the, the, the state propaganda machine went into overdrive. A lot of us could see where it was coming, going and that coercion was coming down the pipe. And, and that fueled a lot of the populist pushback against vaccines. So people I mean that otherwise might've taken a vaccine because ah, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. We're like, the government's going to coerce us. There's no fucking way. If, if there's coercion behind this, it's it's an evil, you know, it can't be good for me. That's so, right. yeah. And, well, and, then, and then on the other side, everyone that bought into the establishment media talking point who thought they were being a good citizen by just going along with this untested thing, um, that that was all they they believe that because of the state propaganda. So none of that would exist. So you wouldn't have this huge market demand to to only be surrounded by vaccinated people because otherwise I'm gonna be I'm gonna die. If I'm I a vaccinated individual, I'm not surrounded by fellow vaccinated, I'm gonna die. That attitude only came from this giant <laughs> statist propaganda apparatus. So so that created the demand. If there was a demand for stores to have uh, show proof of vaccination. It came from that. It didn't come from, uh, it, it's, it wasn't an organic naturally occurring thing that people would demand yeah. in a, in a marketplace because I'd be taking the risk on myself. There's a serious virus out there. You know what? I'm the healthy guy. I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to be careful. I might wear a mask. I might, whatever, but I'm definitely not going to yeah, anyways. Sorry. Sorry, Alex. I keep cutting you off. Oh, no, you're okay. It's I, I was kind of waiting for a good spot to jump in there. But yeah, no, the propaganda was to a point that, I mean, it wasn't just that we okay. were surrounded by propaganda, but it was also that we, any dissent, any professional that dissented from what was, you know, from the propaganda was silenced. And like, they were taken off of platforms, their information was removed, they were, their licenses were taken away. I mean that, that like people were threatened with their very livelihoods just for even having a dissenting opinion. And so, and, and, you know, people who we would normally look to for this kind of advice, you know, medical professionals, you know, people who studied at some of the most prestigious places in the world were being silenced because it didn't go along with the, the, right. the narrative right. or the general Right. But we see Brandon here is going along with the narrative. Matt, Brandon, why are you wearing a face diaper right now? What's going on here? Well, I want to protect I, you guys from COVID if I potentially oh my God. have well, it. I thank you. You're protecting us from computer virus. I'm on your side. But no, Alex, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and this comes back to Daniel Smith's Nazi comment, right? It's, it's like, guys, for the last two years or three years, we have had a segment of the population that have been widely considered unclean. They, they couldn't go, they couldn't engage in commercial activity. They couldn't hold down jobs. They were demonized by establishment people and shills. And, and even, you know, you, you see it in the workplace, like the attitudes carry over. It's like, those guys don't want to get vaccinated. What's wrong with them? And like, don't they follow science? And like, you know, it, it's like th there's animosity towards these people that propaganda has led us to believe are unclean and bad. How is that different than what happened 
in Nazi Germany. I mean, I, I guess the difference here is that these people chose not to get vaccinated, whereas, you know, Jews didn't choose whether they were Jewish or not. But at the same time, you can see some parallels here. And uh, God damn, if, if there, there's a right side and a wrong side to history and the people that were shunning the unvaccinated are definitely on the wrong side of history. We can already call that one. I have uh, animosity, so I, I, I wish to chime in. Um, and that's why, going back to my earlier point, it's important to advocate for freedom uh, even when your side is winning. Because if yes. when your side is losing, that's why I raise money for the trucker convoy. It's really important to advocate for other people's freedom, even though I have some animosity. My problem is with, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about metacognition, uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect. A lot of people can become very passionate about subjects they know nothing about. That's not quite the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is when you're not aware that you know nothing about the situation and you're still passionate and still very confident. So your confidence can shoot up and your knowledge. Let's, let's say we have a graph, confidence, knowledge. Your confidence shoots up, and then as you gain more knowledge, it goes down. Yeah. And it goes back up again once you gain expert-level knowledge. Now, this happens to the left. It happens to the right. Let's take uh, gun ownership, for example. Uh, who's the public safety minister? Mark uh, Mendicino? He's never fired a gun before in his life. He was on a reality show, political blind date. He ne he's never fired a gun. And yet he's the one making gun laws. You have all these inner-city champagne socialists who want to make gun laws, and they have no idea how guns work. You have all these people that want to say tax the billionaires, but they have no experience with the tax code, no experience with finance, no economic forecasting, no knowledge of it whatsoever, yet they have very, very strong opinions on it. That's where you get bad policy, when people are very, very confident but have minimal knowledge. Yeah. And I think I see this happening with the anti-vax community. They're very, very passionate with their views on vaccines, even though they don't know a whole lot about it. Now, you could throw that right back at the pro-vax community quite easily. Uh, but the reality of the situation is when people come along and say, you know, trust the experts, what I mean to say is I don't really trust somebody's opinion if they have zero executional knowledge on the subject whatsoever. That's my take. Well, sure. I, I mean, look, um, the, the anti-vaxxers had a knee-jerk reaction that said, government's forcing this on me. Fuck you, and uh, and and then add in add on all sorts of uh, let's call it you know maybe dim witted even uh, ideas about vaccines and conspiracies and everything else like just add on any any possible reason why you could hate a vaccine and that was added on, but the initial reaction was probably correct, which is government wants to force me to do something, knee jerk back, okay. And, and because if there's coercion involved, uh, we can be sure that it, you know, what, why couldn't it be done voluntarily? You know, obviously there's some bad badness here that, I, that, and that's well, a good instinct to have. That's a better instinct to have than being a midwit, let's say, and, and <laughs> accepting everything the establishment is telling me because science and just going along with it and never questioning it. And then finding out later that, Oh, this vaccine is only effective for a couple months. Uh, it doesn't actually stop the spread of anything. I just bought into and supported a huge lie uh, that, that hurt so many people, isolated, social isolation, uh, drug addiction. I, I mean, the, the, 
emergencies of isolation I've seen as a paramedic over the past two years have been ridiculous, not to mention the uh, neglected health of people who are too scared because of, of status propaganda to get you know, and, and shut down supply chains and destroyed healthcare systems, robbing the joy. There's so many unseen things that that have happened. Um, you know, just just the 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 look in my colleagues' faces of having to work. Just, like, just think about how this COVID bureaucracy affected the average citizen who couldn't go for to a restaurant or to a movie and had to follow all these stupid rituals of masking up, masking down, wearing a thing, getting a shot, doing this, doing that. Well, that times a hundred, if you're actually in the bureaucracy, if you're a healthcare worker, and now you are, you are a, a pawn of the system. You're an object of compliance to be moved around, to follow new arbitrary rules every week about some manager sent down. I mean, it robbed healthcare workers of all the meaning and joy in our job over the past years. I don't know what that effect alone is going to have over the course of the next decade in terms of, of how we show up for people who are having health issues and doing our job. Yeah. Uh, but it's not going to be good. And none of these things, all of these things were were supported. The environment was nurtured by midwits who just accepted at face value reasonableness that the state put out. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, I think you're putting your finger on something really important here. Uh, the only thing that I'd want to add on to it is uh, that of intentionality. There's sure. something going on that I call bad guy pro wrestler psychology bad guy pro wrestler psychology it's where you intentionally antagonize an audience for your own marketing purposes hmm. i don't know if you've ever seen wwe but yeah. they'll go they'll show up and say oh your hometown sucks your sports team sucks and you'll pay money to see them get their ass kicked bad guy pro wrestler psychology so what trudeau does uh, trump does it as well but trudeau is the master of it he does it on vaccines you don't want to get the vaccine well you're a misogynist Something that doesn't make any sense, like just a completely illogical deduction. There's clearly a missing uh, middle term there, but it infuriates the anti-vax crowd. I, I know anti-vax is probably not the right term, but just roll with it for a minute. So they'll go online and they'll say, fuck Trudeau and his stupid vaccines. But what this does is it markets Trudeau to their pro-vax friends and family who see those messages. Sure. Now, Trudeau can't run on a pro-vax campaign we were dead last in the g20 for a vaccine rollout well wait a second did you see the 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 um the campaign that he's put out though or that that's on the liberal page about uh finishing the the fight with covid19 he talks about oh yeah yeah but it's all marketing what i'm saying is it's the same thing with the consultation with indigenous communities it's all smoking it's all marketing they they call it dog whistling i think but yeah sure well yeah dog whistling gaslighting call it what you like i like bad guy pro wrestler psychology he does it on abortion as well Uh, he got rid of uh, summer grants for pro-life students which doesn't actually expand access to abortion it just pisses the pro-life well yeah the best thing you can do is spark outrage in in your detractors because then that drives supporters to you right it's a great money-making it's a great grift oh and that and that's i mean that's social marketing yeah we have social media to thank for that it's a giant outrage machine i need to be doing more outrage myself i i'm not making enough money at this i need to drive some outrage porn i need to piss some people off i need some haters out there I mean, well, we, I, I like to detract from it as much as I can, but I've done it. Like I used to write for being libertarian and I would write, 
you know, incendiary pieces on John Lennon, for example. But those were the articles that you'd get thousands and thousands of views overnight. I'd wake up to an extra 20,000 views if I just insulted John Lennon. It works. That negative campaign works. But with the anti-vax crew or let's say the pro-life, pro-choice issue, whereas the anti-vax community is one-third of the population or the pro-life community is one-third of the Canadian population. I don't know what the American statistics are. I apologize. But uh, given the Canadian electoral system, if you piss off one-third and then you take the pro-vax community or the pro-choice community, let's say the pro-choice community, the above average intelligence by definition would be 50% of them. They'll see right through that and say, you're not on our side, but the easily manipulated, the gullible ones are going to fall for it. Now that's one third of the population. And given the Canadian electoral system, Trudeau just got back into power. That's bad guy yeah. for wrestler psychology. He All insults right. the right group of people with the specific demographics or the specific uh, popularity polls. Right. And he'll win in an election. Basically. Yeah. It's if, brilliant, if, if, if you can get, the, if you can get the deplorables, the people that, everyone kind of goes, Ooh, I don't want to be like that guy to bad mouth Trudeau and say, fuck you Trudeau. Then yeah. Everyone kind of goes like, well, I don't want to be like that guy. So maybe Trudeau's not so bad. Like his gun, his gun rights policies are insane. They don't make yeah, any sense. Of but course. Geared towards insane. All his policies are insane. Alex, what, what were you going to yeah. say? Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, this is all like modern marketing is just showing us that controversy is what sells. That's what gets the tension. Like if you have something that's just like if you have some some facts or information that you're trying to put out there, um, if it's not exciting, if it's boring to people, they're not going to be interested and it's not going to proliferate. It's not going to, you know, other people aren't going to share it. Whereas, you know, even if it's something that they vehemently disagree with, if it's something that like is a bold statement or something that like uh, that you know, yeah, like like you're saying, it's a divisive statement. It'll draw controversy, and that's going to draw attention to it. Um, you know, we see like our all of our social media, everything that we see now, all of our media, really, uh, you know, whether it's mainstream or social media or whatever, is all geared towards that. It's all geared towards giving us what we want more of. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if if people actually cared about the information that wasn't controversial and put yeah. more more attention to it we would see something different than what we do now but yeah. the fact is well, is that I mean, like, believe me i would yeah. i would much rather be talking about how many uh non-aggression principles can fit on the head of a pin than uh talking about the current events that we're talking about right now right but, but nobody uh, wants to hear about it nobody yeah. wants to hear about my uh my weird philosophical pinings um guys it's been uh just over an hour uh we need to wrap up soon one of the last things i wanted to touch on though was uh, well, maybe let's talk, take a look at some of the uh, comments here. Yeah, I missed that last question. Yeah, Sonika was, uh, want haters use this argument I do about abortion. Double murder or death of a baby and the mother should not be a criminal charge as long as abortion is legal. That's fair. Yeah, I, I, what she's getting at there is in, in Canada, if, you, uh, if you're a pregnant mother and you get shot, um, it's a double murder. Uh, right. It's not which, a double which, murder. What's they're, trying that? To, they're trying to make it a double murder in parliament right now. Oh, they're trying to make it a double. I thought it was. I thought there have been people charged with murder or manslaughter for killing a pre a wanted pregnancy. That's right? definitely so happened in the United States. Someone in the belly, and I, I'm pretty sure. Well, killing a pregnant woman is two charges. Yeah. 
the, the backlash, well, maybe in America, but the backlash right now is it's being introduced in legislation by Leslie Lewis types uh, who are trying to make it a double murder, which obviously there are implications for abortion. You'd have to right. be blind is something offensive in order to not see that. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Leslie Lewis types of the Conservative Party are trying to introduce this legislation, which I find fascinating from a bioethical perspective, because if somebody comes along, Tim, and punches you in the face, uh, well, it sucks for them. But if they punch a pregnant woman in the face, then they, I people really don't punch want... me in the face. I punch their hand with my face. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but there's a huge difference between a, a firefighter and a pregnant woman. And if you attack a pregnant woman, like are you saying that firefighters can't get pregnant? Shut up. I'd say, sir. Um, here, here's a question for you guys. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I put this actually, guys. If you're listening, go to my uh, Twitter right now and check out this poll I've done. I'm just curious about. That. I'm thinking through this. I had a uh, uh, father's rights uh, interview the other day. That's going to be actually. I'm going to be publishing that probably in a couple of days. Audience um, talking about all the ways that dads are alienated from their kids. Right. Yeah. And one of the things I thought about is this idea of, um, economic abortion. In other words, if a, a woman can terminate her parental obligations by just killing her baby or killing her fetus, um, and terminating pregnancy, she doesn't have to pay child support. She, she has, you know, she, she's no accountability to anyone, not the father, anyone else. Uh, what, what if a father could do something called an economic abortion? I think this was an idea that they tried to make some headway in some Scandinavian countries a few years ago. And that is the right for a father um, or sperm donor to uh, to legally terminate his rights and obligations as a father during the woman's pregnancy. Uh, so, you know, in other words, um, woman chooses to have the baby. Man uh, has the freedom of choice not to use his body to work for the next 20 years for that, that child and pay child support. Um, thoughts? No, uh, sorry, uh, Daslik, economic or real? No, economic. So we're not killing that fetus, but we're just saying, look, um, you know, I had a one night stand. The chick said she was on birth control. She's turns out she's pregnant, says it's mine. I want to legally terminate my obligations to that child. Uh, that woman can legally terminate her obligations to that child by killing it. I'm not even going to kill that child. All I'm going to do is uh, sign a piece of paper saying I waive all rights. I have to uh, have that child in my life and have custody of that kid 50% of the time. And I waive, and I also waive uh, all my duties. I should not have to pay child support if she chooses to bring that kid to blah, blah, blah. Well, I understand the, uh, the concept of consistency. Uh, my take on it is if you look at RV Morgan Tyler, uh, that's the law. That would be our equivalent, Alex, of uh, Roe v. Wade. So, RV Morgan Tyler, that legalized abortion, the writer of the concurrent majority opinion, Justice Wilson, brilliant exercise in bioethics. Uh, she was not writing YouTube comment section views on abortion. She was writing some of the most sophisticated stuff on it. Uh, her question was, because the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms had come out a few years before 1988, we have Section 7. Everyone has the right to life. Everyone has the right to liberty. Uh, 
pro-life, pro-choice. So yeah. when does the right to life begin? That was her question. Is it the moment you're no longer in somebody else's body? Is it the moment you could viably survive outside of somebody else's I'll body? tell you exactly when it begins, Brandon. It begins at spermatogenesis. And yeah, well, sperm is a human life and masturbation is genocide. So every, stop okay. touching yourself. Okay, Odin. You killer. <laughs> Listen, but, guys, I got to wrap up. I know like we're, we're delving into... Uh, abortion, which is, which is a worthy topic and much more worthy of the five minutes we can give it here that we're coming up to the top of the hour here, guys. I want to thank you so much for, uh, for joining me on this podcast on such short notice. You're great sports. It's been an awesome conversation. Um, let's do this again. I, I really had a blast. Thank you guys. Yeah. Great participants. Anytime. Awesome conversation. Yeah. Awesome. Guys out there, uh, make sure you follow me on Locals. Follow me on um, subscribe. What is it? Uh, Substack. Uh, uh, you can follow, find all those links uh, down below. Um, thanks so much for watching. Appreciate it. And follow Being Libertarian Canada too on Twitter. There you go. Alex, you got any plugs you want to make? Um, so I, I do a, a nonprofit uh, mobile auto service for basically people who can't afford to get their cars fixed. You can check out oh, Greasy Porky awesome. You can check out Greasy Porcupines on Facebook, or you can look up greasyporcupines.org for the website. Um, I take donations and basically put that towards buying car parts for people who can't afford them to get them back on the road and get them back to work. So Love it, Alex. That's awesome. And you're not even the government and you're looking after people. Imagine that. Hey? Wow. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Peace.